Hey everyone, welcome to JCB Art Studio, season six. I still have to wrap that around in my brain here. Season six, gosh. Um, my name is Joanna. We're first time listeners, and I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. And an update on Spy Girls, it will be coming out in February, around February 2024, not September. Uh, just some decisions had to be made, and I've got a wedding. My oldest daughter is getting married in October, and it's just February. Yes. So today, I'm excited to talk about this book. Um, our author, uh, I'm just thinking even I recorded a podcast yesterday, all Canadian panel. Today's author from Nova Scotia. She's multi-published. Her name is Donnelly Moulton. She actually, she writes fiction, nonfiction, and short stories. And today, Donnelly and I, we're going to talk about her latest mystery novel, Hunk Out to Die, a real Brava mystery. And I'm just going to read a little bit about uh, Donnelly, which I got from her website. Her mother knew she was going to be a writer in grade two. Donnelly was asked to write a sentence using a specific word like tree or house. I, I love this exercise. And she provided one line, and she was to provide one line for each sentence. Well, apparently, one line didn't do it. Uh, her first sentence ran off the line, down the margin, along the bottom of the page, and over onto the next page, which I think is absolutely a fantastic story. Uh, she, you know, she writes so much. Um, she's a journalism background. We will be getting into all of this, a communications professional. Um, you know, she likes to, she, you know, like, I, she says, I worked with words to shape messages for clients, wonderful people doing important work that matters. We will be learning about her imagination and her need to express herself. And Donnelly, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Oh, good. Good. I first, there's like I say, there's so much I want to talk to you about. But first, congratulations on your short story, Swan Song, being a 2023 Crime Writers of Canada. Awards of Excellence finalists. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And I just heard from Black Cat Weekly that they have reprinted it in their current issue. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Now, your first novel, this is your debut, isn't it? Hung Out to Die. It is the first. Ha. Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to try to stick with the plan because, like I say, I have so many thoughts going through my head. There's a lot that intrigues me. Okay. Um, I remember when cannabis became legal. Uh, one, because I used to work as a Supreme Court assistant at the prosecutor's office. And I remember it was being discussed then. And also, before I retired, my last five years, I worked in the Office of the Legislative Council, where I consolidated regulations. And when regulations became law, and, and 
I remember my first consolidation was the liquor control and licensing regulation, which was around 180 pages. And it was like, here you go, Joanna. (laughs) This is your first proofreading job, right? And then I remember when cannabis became legal and there were a number of different regulations with respect to cannabis. Um, So when I started reading your novel, and it's with respect to the cannabis industry. I'm just like, oh, so so tell me, what intrigued you to write a mystery novel about the cannabis industry? And it probably started more as I wanted to write a mystery, and then I needed my main character, who was a bit of a surprise to me, but I needed him to be in an industry that would be profitable, that would have a high profile. Initially, I thought of accounting, but then I thought, and no offense to all of the accountants listening, but I thought that might come across as somewhat predictable and maybe a little boring. So I was going to put him in the IT industry, but that's an industry I don't know a lot about. Whereas when I was a journalist, working um, full-time on journalism, I did a lot of reporting on the cannabis sector for cannabis-related publications. So I felt comfortable in that world. And it was novel enough, I thought, to suit the uniqueness of what I believe um, characterizes Riel. That's funny that you said he comes as as a surprise because he's different. Okay. And... Okay, let's just let's just let's talk about him. So Gabriel or Riel Brava. I like him. <laughs> like he doesn't give off the warm fuzzies. I like his sarcasm. And he has these huge goals. He wants to be the president of the United States one day. And if I, I just want to read the the prologue here, when it's in his POV, and you know he says it has been estimated that anywhere from four to twelve percent of chief executive officers are psychopaths. I am one of them. So how? Okay, you said he was a surprise to you. So how how did you work with how did you work with this character? How? Oh, I, I guess he's he's weird. He's weird. He's lovely. I like him. <laughs> Oh, thank you. And and to me, he's weird and he's lovely and he is a surprise. Yeah. I think um, I would have expected me to go with a female protagonist, um, someone that I could relate to more directly, someone I might be more comfortable writing about because I might have had similar experiences um, to her. But one night in the bathtub surrounded by bubbles and aromatherapy and candles, I got this idea for a main character who was a psychopath, not a Dexter psychopath. And I say that as if I've ever seen Dexter and I've never seen Hannibal Lecter, but I do understand their nature is violence and death. Rials is not. Rials is about success and advancement and achievement. But he still has that lack of empathy. He he still has, he, he is not like everybody else in terms of compassion and caring. And I, I'm just thinking, I shouldn't have said he's weird. There's just, he's different. 
but you know what? He, I don't want to say he grows on you or you grow on him, but there's something about him that I'm like, okay, what's going to happen? <laughs> right? Yeah. For me, one of the things I like about Real is that he's genuine. He is what he is, right? And and he enters the world knowing that he's not like everybody else, but also knowing that he cannot express that outwardly, that he must wear this mask all the time so that people will think he cares. People will think that he is compassionate. People will think that he has the regular emotions that everyone else does. And he is fearful for a whole bunch of reasons of misstepping, which of course is where characters like his wife come into play. Yeah. Yeah. And we will talk about her too. Maybe there's just something about him. I don't want to say quirkiness, or like you said, he is genuine. He knows who he is. Liel would not have any interest in other people's children. He would not have any desire to hug them or to play with them or to interact with them. But he would know enough that he has to pretend to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. Okay, now just a quick question. Have you heard that some authors, not sorry, mm -hmm. sorry, not authors, some readers skip prologues? Have you heard that? I, I've heard that from you, yeah. <laughs> which I appreciate. But I can see why, especially because prologues can be long okay. and you want to dive in. Yeah. Fortunately, mine is only two sentences. Yeah. And and I don't get it because I've, I've had Tara Moss on the podcast and she has said, come on, readers, read the prologue, right? You know, and like the prologues are important. And I'm just like, to me, I guess I look at it as what the author has written, whether it be prologue or epilogue, it's all part of the story. And I must admit, I am obedient and rule-following enough that I like to start at the beginning yeah. and work my way to the end. I have a friend who will often skip and read the last chapter, which absolutely mortifies me. Like, how could you do that? First of all, it's totally out of context. Um, but second, it may give something away you don't want. But no, for her, it's if the ending interests her, she'll read the rest of it. Really? I know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, we'll talk a little bit about Riel, and then we'll go on to t about Tiffany. And like I say, it's the the human in him. Um, you know, the, the, the man who's deceased, his son his, is named Bran. And Riel's trying to remember his name. You know, he just about calls him Muffin in one scene, which cracked me up. And he has Tiffany, his partner. And she is sharp. Like, she's sharp. She's intelligent. She knows how to navigate situations and people, right? And now, would you say that she makes Riel um, approachable, successful, or bolsters his image. What, what, like, I, we might as well go in and talk about Tiffany. Like, there are a few characters that did not turn out the way I thought they were going to turn out, and Tiffany is probably the main one. In keeping with who Riel is, he needed what I consider to be a trophy 
wife. She was going to be young. She was going to be connected. She was going to be pretty. Tiffany is all of those things. But all of a sudden, as I'm writing Hung Out to Die, Tiffany is, as you say, very astute, very clever, very aware of her surroundings. But she's also very aware that her husband is not 100% like everybody else and very protective of him and making sure that he's not going to stumble. So she takes on a much bigger role in his life and in the book than I had originally anticipated. That's interesting. Isn't that, isn't that a lovely discovery when you're writing, when these attributes? Yeah. And you're like, Oh girl, where'd you come from? (laughs) And, and, and writers say that all the time that the characters take over. And until I wrote my first book, I thought, Oh, well, that's absurd. You're writing the book, you're dictating things. And then all of a sudden Tiffany is doing something. And I'm thinking now, where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's when I've had that happen where I just think, okay, go with it. Just go with it. Like, it's like, just you, you just type, right? Just go with it. Yeah. Okay. Now, with regards to the two of them, Riel and Tiffany, without giving anything away, and I'm thinking about what you've just said, I'm wondering who has the real, and I, I don't even know if this is the right word to say it, but with, it, with Tiffany and Riel, who has the real let's just say the word power, you know, because there's the, the, there's in the scene, Riel has this revelation about cars in the cannabis parking lot. And it's interesting because he doesn't want this revelation. And he says, I know what to do. I, I know what I need to do. Ask Tiffany. Right. So would you, is there a, like a, I don't want to use the power or the word power, but it, that kind of dynamic between the two of them. I think that's an important point. I think that that Tiffany is his compass, that he knows that 100% Tiffany has his best interests at heart. Yeah. So when he's unsure what's expected of him, when he's unsure how he should react or what he should do, Tiffany is the barometer that will keep him balanced. And I say that, but there are times throughout the book where Tiffany does something that even Rial is surprised, that he had underestimated the insight and intelligence of his wife. And she does something that reminds him that she is much more than simply his barometer, which I also think was important for her. Yeah. Okay. And I don't want to know, because like I said, before we started recording, the, the book book arrives on Friday. And so our listeners understand, um, I really appreciate it when authors can send me, you know, either, like I say, the first three chapters or a PDF. And I have been enjoying Donnelly's book so much that I I want to read it as a book book, (laughs) not as a PDF or an ebook, as a book book, right? So, uh, yeah, okay. And the other thing I find is you have this human connection. You you have a human connection between your reader and your characters. And I'll just let you know, I'll, I'll tell you what I experience, and then you you can, you know, we can discuss. I'm thinking of Riel's assistant, Marcia. 
And you write how she arrives at her desk. And it, the the actual words are, uh, so this is from Riel's point of view, gentle whirlwind of activity as she settles in with her Starbucks decaf mocha latte, a morning tradition, and begins tra- tra- typing something on her ergonomically approved keyboard. That hit me. And I know it may seem like something it's not an earth shattering revelation in the book but that was my routine when i worked okay um as a supreme court assistant at the office of the police complaint commissioner and finally at the office of the legislative council before i arrived at work it was into my favorite coffee shop where i basically started to know the baristas and the baristas knew, knew me by name it was get my mocha go to the office sit down right and i honestly had an ergonomic keyboard because <laughs> i couldn't do it like this anymore so i just i could see it and i thought wow something small in terms of the setting i've connected with and you've hooked me and i'm along for the ride so your 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 thoughts about that well, look, thank you. That's that's good to know because as as I said before we started, when you're the writer, it's often hard to see how others see your work. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because you hit on the two characters that were for me were a surprise. So Tiffany became much more substantive um as the novel um evolved than I ever expected her to be. And Marsha was to be a throwaway character who lived in the shadows. And boy, she was not staying in the shadows. She insisted on coming out. And as you'll find out when you get your paper copy, she doesn't play critical roles or or lengthy roles, but she certainly plays pivotal roles. And she becomes the one character in the book, I think, that we imbue with special otherworldly characteristics, right? So that she does the stuff that nobody else can quite figure out how she's got it all together. But I think it ties back to the fact that she is so organized and so collected. You know, it's the coffee in the morning. It's the ergonomically correct chair and keyboard and all of those things. And she's going to carry that throughout the book. But we're also going to discover that she, like Tiffany, is much more astute than we might give her credit for. She's also going to be a lot more protective of Rial cool. than we yeah, than we had anticipated. Cool. Oh, I can't wait till my book arrives. Um, <laughs> see, because what I found with working actually throughout my career is uh okay. People confided in me with a lot of stuff and they did because I would just, I'd listen and I'd keep it to myself, right? I, I, I wasn't one of these people. I had never gossiped. Okay. And I just, people would tell me stuff and I just kept it to myself. Right. And then of course, and you listened and it's interesting because that scene when the police sergeant comes on, and they're questioning different people. And I'm reading, I'm like, yeah, okay. They're, yeah, yeah. They're going to asking the, this is, uh-huh. Yep. She knows stuff. <laughs> right? you know? so, yeah. Anyways, like, as you can tell, I'm, I've been having a lot of fun reading. Yeah. Good. 
Yeah. The thing about Marcia, I think, that surprised me was not only does she know stuff, but she knows she knows stuff. She's in control of her world, right? And she's not going to be pushed around by people, even though in the hierarchy of a corporation, she might be further down um, on the list than others. But she's very self-assured and very competent in terms of her own self-worth. Good, good. Mm. Okay. So I've I've been mentioning about the scene in the office and it's Sergeant Lynn Rains and how much I was enjoying that. And Riel's observations, because uh, the sergeant is interviewing people in his office, in Riel's office. And Riel's inner dialogue is just excellent. And so then, um, just comparing the two, the importance of, let's say, inner dialogue and actual dialogue. Sometimes I think, I don't, uh, okay, I'm just going to throw out the statement. What do you think about inner dialogue sometimes being more important than just dialogue? And I think that's very true. I think it's it's particularly true for someone like Riel who can't say the inner dialogue out loud. Because it would give away the fact that he doesn't fit in, that he's not like everybody else. So he has no choice but to work it through in his mind and then act on whatever decision he arrives at. But it's got to start there first because otherwise it's simply too risky for him. Yeah. And and then at the end, he's just like, can I have my office back? (laughs) (laughs) It's a comfort blanket for him. Yeah. And and part of the whole novel is the fact that this man is being taken out of his comfort zone. Yeah. And that's very threatening. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, you write how, and also I like to, I didn't say this in the beginning, but just thinking about the people in, is it Newport, Nova Scotia, and the flash flooding that happened? Yes, we have Brooklyn and Lower Sackville and Bedford. There's been a lot of um, natural disasters here in the last year, and we are we are resilient. But um, I'll tell you, we've been hit. Yeah, just thinking about I, I saw again on the news, and just thinking about the pe- my fellow Canadians in Nova Scotia. Okay, and thinking of Nova Scotia. Um. Again, there's just, and it has to do with uh, my law background and where I've worked. And you bring a a very good issue, an excellent issue to light where, you know, it's, you write about as the questioning is going on about the individual who has been found dead. Um, and as the questioning is going on, it, it the bullying bullying is brought up, and you write about how in the province of Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia was the first in the country to pass cyberbullying legislation following the suicide of a 17-year-old girl 
who had digital photos taken of her during a sexual assault and then posted online. And you continue, while most people admired the government's motivation, the law didn't stand up in court. It had to be rewritten, but it's now back in force. And like I say, prosecutor's office, the office of the legislative council, that entire paragraph, again, made me sit back and go, yeah, yeah. I, and I've, I've, I've seen that. I remember when the harassment, um, when I started in Crown, there was no charge for harassment, for harassing someone. And when that came into effect. Now, thinking of your communications and journalism background, is it just, I'm thinking, in your DNA that you want to bring real issues to light? And and that's when I when we talked about that, it got me thinking because the answer is both yes and maybe. Okay. Um, I hadn't anticipated Bran as a character that would recur, and again, he kept popping up, and I needed um, possible suspects. And so the 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 bully and the bully's parents are possible suspects. And I think to your point, because I knew, having done a lot of legal writing um, as a journalist, I knew about the law and I knew the failure of the law and the resurrection of the law. But I also recognized that this was really only going to be a paragraph or two in the book. And so I didn't want to throw it in and toss it away as if to say this young girl's life didn't warrant anything more than a paragraph or two. But my book isn't about cyberbullying, and it's yeah. not about harassment. This is one possible motive. So I struggled with whether it should go in or shouldn't go in. But to your point, I thought it was significant enough um, to demonstrate why the detective might be interested in seeing this through. But it was also significant enough for anybody who has experienced anything like this. So perhaps it would afford some further insight into the issue without that insight being in depth. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Now, I want to ask you some questions, which um, oh, his last name, just Bob Harris. I When I was doing my research, Bob Harris interviewed you because you're a member of the Crime Writers of Canada. Yeah. And I just switching it a bit from if you're wondering what I'm doing, Donnelly, these I have a head which headphones don't sit on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm holding on to my headphones here. So I want to ask you the same question that Bob Harris had asked you when he interviewed you. And it was about writing a great synopsis. So, you know, it's something we all have to do. You know, we write this 70 to 80 to 100,000 word manuscript, and now we need to uh, shrink it down and summarize it, you know, and have pertinent facts and points. So give us your point of view on what makes a good synopsis. And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm probably a good person to ask that question to and a bad person. So 
for me, when I hear the word synopsis, I hear summary, right? But I know that whatever we write, it has to be interesting because otherwise a synopsis could be just a bunch of bullet points that say the story starts here, then it goes here, then it introduces this character. But publishers and agents want more than that. So the synopsis has to be engaging. And I tried to do that with my synopsis. I, I did some research into synopsis and there were things that they said you should do like say who the the guilty person was, who the the, the murderer was. And I thought, gee, I wonder why you do that. And anyway, I think I broke more rules than I adhered okay. to. And as a result, I think people either really liked the synopsis or they think, no, this is not what a synopsis should be. Yeah. So I what what I've learned is that it's about attracting the interest of um those that want to in some way invest in your book. At the same time that you need to interest them and engage them, though, you do have to inform them. And yeah. so it's that balancing act. So I think for me, the synopsis became something that would not only say this is what goes on in the book, but it would say as you're reading the synopsis, it's going to feel like you're reading the book. It's going to be in the same voice and the same tone. And so I think the book has many humorous elements. So the synopsis has humorous elements. And I don't know if that was an advantage or not. Um, as you may know, the synopsis won a um, a contest, um, yeah, put on by a company here based in Canada called Darling Axe, and they have what they call the synopsis skirmish, and I won the very first one. And when the, the judge um, gave her comments, that's what she said. She said, what the synopsis did was it made me want to read the book. So even though I broke some of the rules, um, that you know were recommended we follow um in the end it didn't matter because i achieved the purpose which is yeah i want to know more about this cool now you said that was darling axe x yeah okay i'm going to look that up because they i have, i was going to say they have wonderful um they they offer they're in editing novel development shop, but they have these wonderful contests. They have a query letter contest. They have a first page contest. They have a, and, and um, we're digressing a little, which is wonderful, but these are significant contests. I think that the first prize is $750, right? So it's, it, there are real editors that look at this and offer you real feedback. Um, And that's what I'd want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm an author and writer who looks at, you know, I continually want to grow and want to get better. That's, that's it. That's it. I, you know, that's, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's, that's awesome. That's great. I'm glad I asked that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So again, we're just kind of going down a, a writing author route here. You write nonfiction books as well. And this may be a silly question on my part, thinking of your journalism background, your communications background. But I was wondering, do you find writing nonfiction or fiction harder? Or are they both 
or do they both have their challenges? They're different for me. What I like about writing fiction is my ability to sit down and write. I can fuss with details later. I can confirm facts later. When I'm doing nonfiction, I am writing two paragraphs and then reading three pages to check that I understand the context and that my facts and information are correct. And then I go back and I write two more paragraphs. Um, so it's less developmental and more um, segmented for me. So in an hour, I will have written much more fiction than I will have nonfiction. Ultimately, I'll end up in the same place. Yeah. But it's a it's a very different process. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I was I was just wondering. Okay. Now um, I have to. I- I have we have to talk about a couple of your articles because you and I are on different pages with <laughs> with one or two things here. Um, you've written an article titled "Later in Life: Yoga Suddenly Became My Thing," which was published in the Globe and Mail. Um, I'm not going to use the word fate, but that article it made me think of timing with respect to opportunities because you're talking about later in life yoga okay take like you, you know you're you're now a yogi if i can use that term um do you believe in timing with respect to opportunities be it writing or other personal goals oh i think absolutely and i think the timing is linked to priorities. So you've been chatting about um, your work in the legal field and the demands that would be placed on you working in, in careers like that. And I think I'm the same way with my communications career, that when you're in the middle of it and you're doing it, things like practicing yoga two or three or four times a week are lovely thoughts, but not practical, in the same way that writing a novel is a lovely thought, but not practical because you have this plate that's already full and probably overflowing. But I think there is something that happens to you that at some point you say, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it now or it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. I've thought that. I've thought that definitely with, with my writing. Yeah. Okay. Now in another, another uh, part of Bob Harris's interview, you had a scholarship to get a PhD. You were thrilled, but turned it down. You had a chance to go to Harvard to research perceptions of time. You were thrilled, but turned it down. And I was wondering, this is kind of, you could all, you could also tell me, Joanna, it's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But what, why did you turn them down? Like what was going on? Like what was going on there? Why? Look, I have no idea. Okay. Um, I think that there were probably several factors. Um, I think, well, I, I know I'm an only child, yeah. um, very close to my parents when they were alive. My father contended that if I was going to go off and get a PhD, well, then he and mom were moving with me. Oh. So I'm very rooted in this place. This is yeah. my home. I'm very connected 
um, to Nova Scotia and to the people here and have spent my life here. So uprooting for the sake of uprooting was a big deal. But I think I was also very acutely aware that there were two paths and one path was writing and one path was not writing. And if I went off to get a PhD, that would be four or five years out of my life and it would lead to a career in academia. And so what I ultimately decided was before I bit that bullet and left my home and said no to the writing career, I would do something for a year, deferred my um, PhD um, scholarship for a year and said, I will try a job that involves more writing, which was communications. And I just never went back. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. I am very curious about perceptions of time. That could be a title of a book. Can you explain what your research of with regards to perceptions of time? Like get your your point of view, your what is your idea idea behind perceptions of time? My degree was in sociology. Yeah. And there had been a major international um study that um was conducted and it had certainly tens of thousands and maybe even more participants around the world. And they were asked to keep diaries, got up at 8.15, ate breakfast at 8.20, had Cheerios, right? And God bless them for doing this. And then all that data was um, made available to researchers around the world, including my advisor. So I had access to this huge database of information um, and so I did my started my master's using that database and then wanted to continue um, with the PhD. And so one of the areas that I got involved in was when you looked at some of these diaries, people would say things like, thought I'd go to the movies. Oh, no, it's too far. And when you actually looked at it. So, for example, in Halifax, we have a community called Lower Sackville right? And Halifax seems like it's here and way, way far away is Lower Sackville. But Lower Sackville is probably six kilometers from the theater. Yeah. But people in their mind, because they see Halifax and Lower Sackville as being so far apart, they would think, oh, it's going to take me half an hour. And so that's the perception of time. It's not the reality of time at all. But we have it in our mind that New York is so far away from Pennsylvania, or that Victoria is so far away from Vancouver, that we behave accordingly, even though, in fact, the foundation on which we're behaving is inaccurate. So that's what perception of time was looking at. Okay. Okay. Because having lived in Victoria for a long, long time. I'm just, the thing that surprised me was when we moved to Shimanus, uh, for example, on a good day, getting home from downtown Victoria to our house would take, on a good day, 45, 50 minutes, okay, in traffic. That's a good day. So when we moved here, and, uh, you know, my spouse would be mentioning about how uh, some friends of his, you know, didn't want to have a job in Ladysmith because that would be a, or in Duncan, let's say, because that would be a 20 or 25 minute drive. 
And I'd, I'd look at him just shocked, like, that's nothing. Okay. There's <laughs> nothing that is, that is nothing because I'm because of what I was used to, you know, it in Victoria, like a 45 minute drive home was a was was good. It is that idea that we perceive the distance to be much greater than it actually is, or we perceive the time that's associated with the distance to be much greater than it actually is. And as a result, we don't do things or we don't go places. The flip side is also true, that we think someplace is so much closer than it actually is. It's just around the corner, when in fact, it's not just around the corner. But for some reason, in our mind, we've positioned it that way. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. For, okay. Now, one more, one more fun question. Uh, it was, it was your website's really cool. I had, I had fun on there, right. And, and looking at, at looking at your different articles. Okay. Now another article that was published in the Globe and Mail that you wrote was, I have found my happy place and it's in the bathtub. Okay. <laughs> I'm a shower person. <laughs> there, there are, t- it's like yeah. cilantro. You either love it or you hate it. <laughs> okay. So my point of view is now my shower, granted it's, I've, we've moved, we built this house and we, my husband gave extra attention to the shower. So it's, it's long and it's wide and it has white tile up on this all sides of it. And I've got a rain pan, right? <laughs> and I, I get in there and I just I'm ha- it's my it's my happy place. I'm in there like 10 minutes, 15, I'm out and I'm starting my day. And I, I relate, I understand why you like a bath. So why why do you prefer? Why are you a bathtub person? <laughs> And it's very interesting because, and shower people do this all the time. They say, I'm in and I'm out. And I think, why bother? If it's just about in and out, whereas I have to do the facial, I have to do the moisturizing, I have to do the exfoliation, the candles are going. I'm two hours minimum, right? Like this, oh, this is a journey. Now, this isn't the bath to get clean. This is the bath to savor the moment, right? This is where Riel was born, in the bathtub, because there's no... uh, And bath people, I think, are often night people versus shower people who are day people. So you do have to get in and out. You have to start your day. You have to have your breakfast. You have to get dressed. You have to go to work. Whereas I'm ending my day. I'm going to get in my pajamas afterwards. I'm going to snuggle down under fresh sheets that have been spritzed with linen spray. So it's a different approach, I think. So I think shower people love the feel of the shower, the warmth of the shower, and they love knowing that they're clean. Whereas bath people love being able to have the solitude and the quiet and the aroma and just the savoring of it all. And and people have showered me with with bath gifts. I have an entire closet that is full of bath bombs and salt scrubs and bubble baths. And uh, it becomes just part of the ritual um, that you enjoy. That's interesting because I know my daughter gave me a bath bomb, and it it sat on my sh- on my shower shelf, oh. 
and it's just kind of like going, <laughs> it's, it's not busying or doing what it's supposed to do. Right. Um, but you, it's interesting because you had said that Riel came to life in when you're having one of your very luxurious, they, it sounds luxurious baths. Okay. Now what yeah. I find though, is that in the morning, and maybe this is a true you're saying about, you know, morning shower people, evening, your luxurious bath. But in the shower, that is when some of my, I don't want to call them one-liners, but I'll have great zips of dialogue or else I'll get um, like an idea will come to me. And I'm like, <gasps> why didn't I think of that? You know, and I'll be like, okay, I've got to remember that. So that's interesting. Is it, it, maybe it's the solitude. And I think that that regardless of shower or bath, there's yeah. nothing else you can do but be there, right? Yeah. Like when you're in your car, you can also be talking on your phone, right? When you're reading your email, you can also be rifling through some mail on your desk. But when you're in the shower or the bath, there's nothing else you can do but be there. So I think you're absolutely right. It is where thoughts and ideas and solutions are likely to come to us. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, uh, finally, uh, the last question is, um, I know I'm I'm retired now. I honestly can say I'm not slowing down. I have lots of projects on the go. You strike me as someone who you have lots of projects on the go. So, so what's next for you? I am currently working on, I have finished a second mystery book and just going through and doing the edit. And it's not a real book. It's okay. a very different book. And it's more where we started. It's more the book I thought I would have written the first time out. It feels more like me, although I'm very attached to Riel. Um, my publisher, wonderfully, also has a series of historic um, mysteries. Yeah. And she has asked me to write one based out of Quebec. So <gasps> it will come out in February 2024. Yes, based on a very famous story of um, a Black slave in Montreal accused of arson and ultimately hung for that crime. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so from a Canadian historical perspective, it is an important moment um, in our history and um, a depressing and unfortunate um, one. Um, I think some people think she's guilty. Some people think she's not. And my book, my fictional character will take a position on that as the book unfolds. I hope you come back on the podcast. That would Absolutely. be a lot. I would really like to discuss that. Yeah. All right. Well, Donnelly, I hope you had fun. I had fun. Um, like I said, okay. What is your social? What what are the social your socials where people can find you? Because I'll include it in the show notes. Absolutely. And um, I'm on Facebook at Donnelly Moulton and Instagram at Donnelly Moulton and Twitter, which I guess is now X. Is that what it is? I don't, I've, I've, yeah. I, you know, I had a Twitter account. They shut me down. So I said, okay, fine. <laughs> right. I, I'm getting very confused. The little bird is gone. I quite okay. like the little bird. Yes. <laughs> no, that's right. And all of it is on my website, okay. DonnellyMoulton.com. 
Excellent. I will find you on Instagram. I'm on there too. Perfect. And and I'll find you on Facebook. Donnelly, thank you. Um, people, her her debut, I, I don't, I'm not even going to say debut novel, her novel, Hung Out to Die, a real Brava mystery. You know, we all say we want to read something different. Well, this guy, this guy, real, he is different. And it's it's just seeing his journey and seeing how he's coping and seeing how how he's navigating through this situation he's been put in. And uh, it, it's it's great. It's good. It's great. Um, like I said, I am waiting for my actual book book to arrive on Friday. So thank you, Donnelly. Oh, thank you. This has been wonderful. Okay. Bye-bye.